0: you're listening to the coach approach with diane ravenscroft whether you're an entrepreneur an ambitious employee or someone interested in getting the most out of every connection responsive communication is key Join management and learning specialist, Dr. Diane Ravenscroft, as she gives you the tools to improve any relationship that matters to your business, your career, and your life. All right, here's Diane. Welcome back to the Coach Approach Podcast. I am Diane Ravenscroft. In my previous podcasts, I introduced you to an optimistic techie, a realistic engineer, and a host of other unique people facing unique barriers and opportunities. I've summarized the steps, challenges, and mindset of the coach approach, and we've explored different communication styles together. Today's podcast is about the price of ambiguous communication that I observed during a hotel atrium encounter with etiquette. As I describe my hotel atrium encounter with etiquette, you will hear a scene of tables being set during my description of the etiquette training. As I describe what I saw, please think about your communication style to determine how much clearer you may need to be to set the table for the people you serve, perhaps as a leader, for sure as a worker. In today's podcast, we will explore the ultimate cost of ambiguous communication, what I refer to as one of the costs of non-performance, also known as waste. Waste is unproductive. Unless you work literally at a waste management center, and I've had some great client engagements in those contexts. The type of waste I'm talking about relates to productivity. I would like to think that each one of you listening to this podcast today understands the power of engagement. Engagement is an opportunity to interact with the people around you in a highly productive way. That's my idea, anyway, of engagement. Unfortunately, the costs of non-performance, waste, happens a lot in organizations and is usually the context that I'm brought in to help, support, and provide resources. Let me say it this way. And as I make these statements, you might just hear our first acronym for today's podcast, W-A-S-T-E. Here we go. Waste is unnecessary, and when you work in an organization committed to engagement, Waste won't happen as often. If you wait for information instead of asking, if you sense something is best instead of trying to confirm your gut with real information, reaching out to somebody for an answer, you waste time. Engagement is necessary. Engage with the people who can inform you. Ideally, they inform you clearly. Waste. W-A-S-T-E, if you wait instead of ask, that's non-performance, especially if you wait too long. If you try to get a sense of what to do without trying to reach out to somebody who can help you, that's potentially a waste of time. Engagement is a way to focus on performance and eliminate waste. If accuracy and precision is part of your role, you know you cannot afford to have waste. You may not have thought, however, that poor and ineffective communication always produces waste, as do bad attitudes, digging your heels in to be oppositional instead of being cooperative, and my least favorites, resistance and rebellion. I much prefer receptivity. Some forms of work waste are tied to personal maturity and personal responsibility. There's no doubt about that. Whereas other forms of work waste are tied to skills not yet mastered. Focusing today on ambiguous communication, here are five most typical kinds of work waste present almost every day in any organization, anywhere. So, five, one for every day of the week. Here's the first failed attempts. At two-way communication. The second, failed results after a successful attempt at two-way communication. The third, failure to consider the perspective of others as potentially or actually valid. The fourth is missed opportunities. And the fifth form of work waste relating to communication is misunderstandings. All interpersonal challenges create waste, and they are often At the heart of non performance. Some good news is whatever your workplace issues, I have some solutions, especially when the challenge is communication styles. One solution comes in three easy elements that I will describe fully in my next podcast. But in brief, the elements are easy to remember with the letters CBS. I told you lots of acronyms today. C is for context, B for backstory, S for sequence. My CBS solution channels clarity, focus and direction for any conversation. When each CBS element is in place, as we communicate, we significantly reduce the likelihood of the five kinds of work waste, and we lessen ambiguity. So there's a quick solution: fewer failed attempts, fewer missed opportunities, and fewer misunderstandings, especially less invalidation. If you create context, you're interested in the backstory, you're interested in the person and what they contributed, and you want to understand the sequence. Where did the person fit in? Since definitions matter, here's the best definition I've heard, and I'm going to read this, to describe ambiguous communication, and that is, using unclear statements which lack of focus, making statements that also leave room for many interpretations. So let me read that again. The definition of ambiguous communication is using unclear statements which lack focus and making statements that leave room for many interpretations. Did you hear the potential for waste in that? How many times have you heard instructions and then the person walks away and you think, but what about this? How about that? Leaving room for interpretation is rife for error and in some situations with some people, Leaving room for interpretation creates opportunities for corruption, even perceived corruption. If you don't believe me, check out an article in a Vermont paper called Seven Days. You can find it online at 7daysvt.com. There's an article of an employee, the employee has power, and the individual decided on their own accord to stop adding fluoride to the drinking water in a Vermont town. If you're listening to me and you live in Vermont, you probably know what I'm talking about. The Seven Days article points out how the person interpreted aspects of his role in a certain way. So he acted in accord with his interpretation. Just Google Richmond, Vermont, fluoride, and you may see a person who looks like Santa Claus pop up on your monitor. That's the story rife with ambiguity. Ambiguity in paperwork, that is. So, ambiguity is not just about verbal communication. It can be found in documents galore. I know what you're thinking. If you're responsible for employee manuals, if you're responsible for teaching important standards, you really don't want to have any ambiguity. I remember talking with someone who was new to HR. It was their first role, and they were working with a small business. And they hired me because I had a background in HR consulting, they hired me to just partner with them, to just be alongside them so they didn't miss anything. And the first thing they wanted to tackle was the employee manuals. And the person said to me, look at this, Diane, I could drive a Mack truck through this guideline. I could drive two Mack trucks through this policy. And on we went. Certain contexts require really, really tight guidelines. So you don't want to be ambiguous in your communication of policies and standards and guidelines and mandates, obviously. But this podcast focuses on the spoken word, not the written word. And I came face to face with the importance of clear, unambiguous communication when many years ago, I arrived quite early for an important meeting. What was happening around me looked really interesting. I I arrived, there was a lot of people standing and watching what looked like etiquette training, But it was etiquette training on a grand scale. It was in a local hotel and everyone was focused, focused on details while beautiful items were paraded out one by one. I observed these dedicated people for less than an hour as they were writing and sketching. And the words and actions made quite an impression on me. So I'm going to share it today. I wish I could find the facilitator to thank him for changing the way I speak, listen, and think about communication to this day. The experience was that memorable. I don't typically arrive an hour before an event that I facilitate, but at the time I lived in Essex Junction, Vermont. And when you move to a place, you don't always know what the bus schedule is. So you learn the hard way what the bus schedule is by being stuck behind several different school buses, going to several different schools, and potentially arrive late to your destination. So I had learned about the different shortcuts, even though some of my neighbors didn't want to tell me what the shortcuts were, because in their words, it won't be a shortcut if we tell too many people. A known traffic challenge exists in five corners, so coupled with five corners and the different bus schedules, I left very early. And that meant I arrived very early at this downtown hotel. And since I'd set up my room the night before, I decided to wait for my group alongside this etiquette training. I like to set a nice table for my guests, so, yeah, what could I learn? What I saw and heard all those years ago helped shape and inform The coach approach. I may have only been watching and listening a short time, like I said, under an hour, but the experience truly shaped my communication style. Perhaps my retelling will impact your communication style also. I should mention that I had my digital recorder with me and months after I transcribed my observations and reflections. Those notes have been in a filing cabinet for years. I confess, the paper files in my life have yet to be scanned into electronic files. Someday. But today, I'm really excited to finally share this experience with you. As I share this true story, I'll be making observations and noticing rather than judging. That is important to me to say. Here's what transpired. First, the ambiance and then the communication style. An internal trainer from the hotel, I could see it was an internal person because they had a name tag on with the logo and everything of the hotel, this person was surrounded by what looked like expensive rare props straight out of a dining room scene from Downton Abbey. He pointed to, lifted, and generally showcased special items ready to use and display on tables. It was quite the setting and I was drawn in. I was noticed standing near the group, so I whispered and I asked if I could watch. I quietly said I'd arrived early from my event right next door. Do you mind if I watch? I told them who I was, and I'd like to take some notes if that was okay. I held up my digital recorder and said, I'm going to use this too. Nobody objected. I was excited. The group was also very attentively taking notes, and some were drawing images of every imaginable fancy plate, glass, goblet, and shiny cutlery that was wheeled out and assembled with great care and placed onto a bright, white, crisp tablecloth. With precision and impressive, exceptional, I would say, attention to detail. What struck me about the trainer's communication style, though was directions were being given with words that left me more perplexed than prepared. If it had been my job to duplicate this elegant setting, I really don't think I could have done so after watching, listening. You see, the instructor spoke, emphasizing only what not to do, as the details were stated, while placing items where they belonged. What not to do verbally, with a hint of what to do visually, as I saw... One drawing on a whiteboard, but other than that, everyone was really needing to pay close attention to the instructions and the descriptions as more and more items were brought out on trays. Picture yourself trying to learn through these statements and actions as I described some of what was said and some of what was done. So this was transcribed, so I'm going to be reading. While holding up a small bread knife, I heard. Make sure you don't have the tip of the knife too close to the base of the glass, pointing to a glass already on the table. He continued, Avoid spacing the forks too close to one another, so you leave space for the guest's fingers to reach in and pick up the appropriate fork that matches the courses being served. Well, that much I knew. Work your way from the outside fork, salad fork, dinner fork, dessert fork. I think there's actually... I learned 14 possible forks, which can be selected, depending on the meals. But uh, back to my notes. The number of and placement of spoons was described, this time with more cautionary words like avoid and without, then adding statements beginning with the word never. This is a quote. Never have the spoons placed in a way that creates a crowded setting. Spoons have large heads. So, you must place them appropriately. End quote. That word gets me every time. Appropriately. So hard to know. What's your standard of what's appropriate? Here's mine. What's yours? Easy to be wrong, then corrected. Now I'm discouraged. Why didn't you just give me exactness to begin with? I looked up from my notepad to listen how far apart and where to place the spoons so the settings wouldn't look crowded. I looked up also to see if there was a diagram, anything, to be clear. Measurements? Dimensions? He continued to instruct, though, using words like don't, can't, and shouldn't, as a way of introducing how to present a grand vision of elegant dining. I really would need exactness to duplicate, especially scale, this lovely setting. Each time I heard what to avoid and do without, I wondered if I was going to hear what to do as well. Wouldn't you? If you listen to my podcast about successful communication, advancing leadership excellence, you may have been picturing my scale. Remember S-C-A-L-E? Successful Communication, Advancing Leadership Excellence. If I had a scale, there would have been way more words on the side of uncertainty than clarity. Way more words piled up around confusion, than clear direction. I have experienced ambiguous instructions before, but I hadn't heard or seen ambiguity in action quite like this. I felt uncertain. I felt confused and perplexed. And I might frustrated, and I was just observing. So I was noticing that I was feeling more than thinking. And that really bothered me. I can imagine the pressure that was building for the people whose task it was to go do this, go do this next, go do this now, over here and over there until the banquet hall is ready for hundreds of special guests. That's a lot of pressure when there's ambiguity. One aspect that surprised me was that I didn't see any hands raised or any body language to indicate a question or indicate a clarification while the person leading gave directions by telling the group what not to do. Please forgive the repetition, but at no point did I hear directions stated in a way that I knew how to flawlessly set this table. No doubt the experienced observers had an easier time than those being exposed to these intricate details for the first time, like me. I didn't discern a vision I could replicate to set an elegant table for my guests. This was to me an unbalanced presentation of important information stated exclusively in negative terms. That's really hard to say because I am sure that the trainer must have spent a tremendous amount of time preparing ahead and and practicing. But I have to say it again. This was to me an unbalanced presentation of important information stated exclusively in negative terms. It was not a proficient example of the coach approach excellence in avoidance exception. Numerous statements were open to interpretation. Very little was resolved, and again, unclear directions almost exclusively. If you're a leader i hope you're thinking about how this true story can help you figuratively set the table for and with individuals you lead so there's no ambiguity no confusion and no uncertainty none none whatsoever especially no room for interpretation when accuracy and precision matters no confusion about priorities and how people spend their time acting on priorities no uncertainty about your strategic goals and how to implement these through good decision-making, and absolutely no ambiguity around how to live out your vision. If clear, unambiguous communication is in place, then the people on your team will know how to follow your directions and your instructions. And this is particularly important if you're asking people to be vested in client satisfaction. Basically. Clear communication helps employees not be dependent on you. People will understand what's important, and by applying their personal responsibility, they won't waste your resources. They won't feel stuck. Work will get done, and people will feel secure in the knowledge they're following your strategic plan. This means your strategy becomes visible in people's work habits. That last statement is actually a moment of celebration I had with an executive I was involved in executive coaching, and the individual was not convinced that strategy and behavior could be connected. And at the end of our coaching session, realized it is possible to observe the strategic plan if you don't know how to make your organization's strategy visible in people's work habits. Let's talk. I hope you're seeing some of the benefits of avoiding ambiguous communication. I hope you're seeing how clear communication creates clarity. So let's get focused. Let's be ready to take action and and be engaged. So join me next time to learn more. Until then, I am Diane Ravenscroft, and I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Coach Approach podcast. Bye for now. Thanks for listening.